0: Before we get started on this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I just very quickly wanted to say that the podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, the Alexa in your house, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and pretty much everywhere else that you can think of to listen to podcasts. So whoever you found us, whether it be from a hashtag on Instagram, a suggestion on iTunes, or even a friend telling you about the show, thanks for listening. If you want to write to us for any reason at all you can send everything to let's talk at gmail.com or you can follow me personally at chef brian clark on instagram if you are a fan of let's talk about chef and you can take one second from your busy lives to tell someone about the show we would greatly appreciate it word of mouth is the best way that we can continue to grow this episode of let's talk about chef is being brought to you by the new yorker magazine Right now, you can get the best journalism, stories, and writing sent directly to your front door for only $6 for a 12-week subscription. That's 50 cents a week for not only the best magazine in the world, but also complete access to past issues and online-only content for subscribers that gets updated every single day. For six weeks of the New Yorker magazine for only $6, go to newyorker.com. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. Human beings are very, very good at one thing, eating. Our first ancestors were better at eating than the other species of hominids walking around, and because of their hunger, we're able to figure out how to capture and hunt and grow food to feed it. They survived. The others didn't, and that's why we're still here now. Today, food is very different. The ways in which we get food are very different from even what it was 10 years ago. I have an app on my phone that can allow me the ability to access the warehouses of the companies that provide my restaurant with dry goods, imported spices, and seafood. One click from my phone and I know exactly how much an item will cost, what size it will be, and when it will arrive. That's pretty amazing, but it's also kind of scary. The sheer amount of food that we eat equals about 1,942 pounds of food per person per year, and that all has to come from somewhere. As our human brains grew and grew and our populations exploded right along with it, that immense hunger that drove us to conquer new lands, burn down forests, and to grow agriculture and hunt down the Earth's most impressive and delicious species ended up with us, the humble, fragile human being controlling nature. We were, and still are, number one. I was struck by a thought the other night when I was working in my kitchen. I'd brought in venison. It's game meat season in Ontario, and although you aren't allowed to serve personally caught wild game in restaurants, the avenues open up to allow more game birds and animals into the province for chefs like me. I look forward to this time of year like a kid waiting to go to Disneyland. As I was serving the dish, a thought went through my head. What if this was the last one? What if this is going to be gone soon? What if I knew that what I was serving was endangered, was about to cease to exist? What would I do? Chefs like me, and chefs throughout history, have prepared and served food for customers. It's what we do. It's what I get paid to do. Chefs have always followed and listened to trends, served meals that were popular. The public, despite what we believe or want to believe, does define what we put on our menus. In France, right now, chefs are up in arms about the ban on eating and serving ordelin a small songbird that is considered to be one of the most delicious things in the world. They want to keep serving it. They want to keep eating it. The only problem is that because of the desire to eat the Ortolan, it's an endangered species and has been for quite some time. The food that we eat today is so vastly different from the food people ate even a few decades ago. With the advent of the internet, more and more dishes and ingredients from other countries, other cultures, make their way onto menus in places that would never have before even thought about eating them. Things like curry, sushi, and even kimchi were not eaten outside of the places where they originated. And the legend of how amazing eating Ortolan is has made it so desirable that people are willing to pay thousands of dollars to be able to say that they've eaten it. Whenever the public decides somehow that a dish is deemed worthy, they start to eat it, and eat a lot of it. The true victims of our never-ending carousel of choice are the plants and animals that find themselves to be the flavor of the month. And it has always been this way. Whether it be an animal that's easy to kill or easy to eat, something was delicious and bountiful, it doesn't matter. It would show up on menus and on our plates and we would do what we do best, eat it until it's gone. Chefs were and are still responsible for the buying and serving of a lot of animals that don't exist anymore. Despite what you may believe that chefs aren't capable of doing it, that we are smarter, wiser, more willing today to not serve endanger animals, you're sadly wrong. It's still happening. And chefs are fighting for their rights to make this little bird, the Ortolan, a menu staple again. This week on Let's Talk About Chef, we are talking about those chefs who want more, the Ortolan, and also another bird that we thought would be impossible to kill and eat all of. Today on Let's Talk About Chef, we're talking about eating into extinction. The Ortolan is a small, sparrow-like bird that lives in France. Since Roman times, it has been a delicacy, something that was prized, and when prepared properly can be one of the most delicious things on the planet. It's also very easy to catch. When every fall, the bird migrates to Africa for warmer weather, and the way poachers caught it was by placing huge nets and spring-loaded launchers in the fields. As the flocks of birds land on the ground, the nets are launched and thousands of birds are trapped instantly. The way that chefs prepare the orderlin may seem gruesome, but chefs have always been able to figure out how to make something taste delicious. But with the Ortolan, it seems to have been mastered. The small bird weighs only about an ounce. In the wild, it feeds at night, using its eyesight to gorge itself on grapes and seeds so that when the songbird was caught in Roman times, the eyes were stabbed out of its head to keep it in the dark at all times. Because the bird constantly thinks it's nighttime, it constantly eats. As grapes and nuts are piled around the blind birds, they eat constantly, fattening themselves up and adding more and more fat to their little bodies. Nowadays, a simple blanket is placed over the cage where the birds are kept to make it think it's nighttime. When it comes time for the Ortolan to be killed, they are drowned in Armagnac or brandy. One by one, the birds are placed into a bucket filled with the brown spirit, and as they gasp for air, they suck the brandy into their bodies and are stuffed full of it when they die. The next step is to deep fry it, and because of its small size, it doesn't take very long and eventually the bird, still sizzling from the oil, is placed in front of the diner hole, its leg, beak, and bones still very much attached. The diner leans forward over the bird and places a napkin over their head. This act does two things. Nowadays, it will keep the smell of the perfectly cooked oil, fat, and brandy under the napkin and steaming in your face, its smell gently wafting over you. In the past, the napkin was placed over the head to shield what you were doing from the eyes of God. No man or woman should be able to take part and eat something this delicious. You place the small bird entirely into your mouth and eat it in one bite. It is by all accounts breathtaking, and it's also illegal. Since the 1990s, there has been a ban on catching the orderlin, and the reason is because it was almost completely wiped out. As more and more people wanted to try one of the most delicious things on planet Earth, their numbers grew smaller and smaller, until they were critically endangered. And still, chefs would prepare it. Today, chefs like Alain Ducasse, one of the most Michelin-starred chefs in the world, is trying to get the ban lifted, telling a French food magazine that by banning the Ortelin, it undermines centuries of tradition, customs, and promotes a black market with exorbitant prices. And he's not wrong about the black market. The small one-ounce bird today costs around 100 euros apiece. But that's before you cover it in the dark, feed it grapes and seeds, and then drown it in liquor. The dish has become something of a rite of passage for only the most wealthy and well-connected of people. In the show Billions, on Showtime, Bobby Axelrod dines on the small bird. Jeremy Clarkson ate one on a show in 2002. But all the while, the legend of the dish grows and grows on television, movies, and in books and there continues to grow a desire in people to eat it. As chefs continue to say that the species is not endangered, despite facts, and that it is French tradition, and it should be served, it's since been calculated that the species since the 1980s is down 88%. Although it's not extinct yet, because of climate change poaching and the never-ending legend of eating it, it will be soon. People tend to not believe that something that numbers in the millions can be considered endangered. How would it be possible to wipe them all out? It may seem improbable, but we only have to look not that far ago to one bird that used to be prized by chefs and diners alike, that used to be served by the millions in restaurants and homes across North America, and used to number in the billions. The passenger pigeon. This episode is being brought to you by Audible. Audible is the world's largest collection of audiobooks. They quite literally have everything. Time in today's modern life is hard to come by. With commuting for work, busy family schedules, and a never-ending notification and Netflix series to watch, the act of sitting down and reading a book is becoming rarer and rarer. You can keep up with the latest bestsellers, re-listen to classics, and find literally any topic of book on Audible. And like me, listen to any book you want while juggling your busy life. Audible is letting people try out their amazing service by offering you a free audiobook of your choice. Just sign up and away you go. If you decide that you don't want to keep using Audible, you can cancel anytime, no questions asked. To try out Audible free, go to audible.com. Find out what you've been missing. And now, back to the show. Passenger pigeons used to number in the billions. Their habitat was the entire eastern side of North America. When the first settlers were landing in what became America, flocks of billions and billions of passenger pigeons would fly overhead, and they would keep flying overhead for days to pass by. These flocks of birds would be up to three miles wide, and when they were directly overhead, would block out the sun, leaving you in total darkness for four days. The sounds of the billions of wings beating could be heard from miles away before they flew over you. Today we have no idea what that might have sounded like, but it would be similar to having a dozen helicopters flying 100 feet off the ground continuously above you. We don't have any recordings of what the passenger pigeon sounded like. We don't really know other than written accounts of them sounding similar to a morning dove, but with the occasional loud squawk. Needless to say, the sound of this many birds calling out to one another was deafening. There is one video filmed on a camera in the early 1900s that shows a flock of passenger pigeons flying overhead. At first, only a few hundred birds can be seen coming from the bottom of the screen then thousands of dots start to move in. The camera stays stationary, pointing its lens at one part of the sky. As the film continues, the white of the sky becomes dark and menacing, with only little pricks of light shining through the slightest gaps between millions of birds. It's an amazing and sobering thing to witness. Native Americans would feast on the birds when they landed in their lands, sometimes following the snaking, massive line of them catching them at night. Pigeon meat could sustain entire tribes for months. With so many pigeons, there came problems. As humans began to plant crops, the flocks would land and devour them. If a million birds rested in a group of trees overnight, the next day the ground would be covered in inches of feces. They were considered a pest, and they were also delicious. The best way to catch the pigeons was similar to that of the Ortolan. Just walk up on them at night, throw a net, and you had yourself a hundred or so birds. These birds would be roasted, put into stews, or baked. During colonial times, a weekly meal would be pigeon stew, pigeon pie, or pigeon served with vegetables. And in taverns, pigeon was always on the menu. It was cheap, quick to catch, and was literally everywhere. As cities began to grow and more and more restaurants opened, you could buy passenger pigeons in delis and markets for just pennies. They were disposable. And of course, with the advent of the shotgun, suddenly the passenger pigeon had a much larger problem. Instead of waiting until nightfall and creeping into the field with a net, all farmers suddenly had to do was point the shotguns into the sky and fire into the hordes of birds. Every time they pulled a trigger, birdshot would fly up and hundreds and hundreds of birds would fall down. The written accounts of this would say that the amount of feathers floating in the air would look like it was snowing, and the sound of the bodies hitting the ground would sound like rain. Eventually, after years and years of the pigeons being eaten, their numbers began to shrink. Even though scientists and zoologists were saying to everyone that would listen that the pigeon was going to be gone, nobody listened. Chefs kept serving the birds and people kept eating them. Until the worst fears of the scientists came true, the pigeons were gone. Despite the warnings and the proof that the birds were falling in numbers, nobody believed that something that numbered in the billions, a species of bird that accounted for 20% of all birds in North America, could disappear. It wasn't possible. The last passenger pigeon was named Martha, and she was kept in the Cincinnati Zoo in Ohio. Passenger pigeons made it for life, and Martha's partner was a male pigeon named George. The pair of them lived at the zoo together, and every day hundreds of visitors would stand in front of the cage, somberly watching the last two passenger pigeons, not believing that somehow these were the last two. George died four years before Martha did, so she sat alone by herself, the very last of her kind. The last of billions. She would call out at night from the branch she sat on, calling out her song to no one, waiting for a reply. Just years earlier, the skies had been filled with her kind, the air would fill with the sound of their calling back and forth to one another, and now there was only one just Martha. The hunger and ignorance of humans had wiped out the entire species, and for four years she would call out for others until she died in 1914. The Last Passenger Pigeon.
1: If you're traveling in the North Country Fire Where the winds hit heavy on the borderline Remember me to one who lives there For she once was a true lover of mine If you go in snowflakes snowflake storm When the rivers freeze and summer ends Please see she has a coat so warm from the howling wind
0: there are countless animals and plants that have been made extinct by our hunger with the passenger pigeon gone the chefs and restaurants needed a new bird something cheap that could be raised and slaughtered and put onto menus and so we started to eat chicken we changed chickens bodies to make their breasts and thighs larger We created basically a new species of bird to fill our need to eat because we didn't have pigeons anymore. Before the extinction of the passenger pigeon, chicken was used for eggs, and farmers would sometimes eat the odd bird that got too old. It was not a staple of our diets. The game birds were. We as chefs are responsible for what we put onto a plate. We need to understand where the food we are serving people comes from. There is a simplicity to how we order now. We are removed from the blood and bones of food production. We don't see the process. We see the results. With chefs calling for the end of the ban of eating Ortolan, they are basically saying that it's impossible to make a species extinct that has numbers as large of that as the endangered Ordolin. They are saying that it can't happen. But it has before. To Elaine Ducasse, who I know has listened to this podcast, and hopefully will listen to this episode, I have one thing to say. I understand that Ortolan is a tradition. I understand that it is a right and a privilege to eat and prepare this bird, and I also understand that you don't see the bird becoming extinct any time soon. But it will. Let's leave it off the table for a while. Let's make the ban stricter. Let's make the act of poaching this bird so illegal that no one in their right mind would even think to catch one. I would love to eat Ortolan. I have dreamed about putting a towel over my head and crunching down onto that bird. I have read stories about how it tastes of hazelnuts and grapes, how the brandy melts with the fat and becomes the most impossibly delicious flavor imaginable. I want nothing more than to sit down and try it. But I can wait. I can wait until the numbers are stronger. I can wait until the populations have come back. I can wait until I know that if I serve it in my kitchen I'm not doing so when the doors are locked and the lights are out and it's in secret. Human beings killed the passenger pigeon, and we can do it again. We are doing it again with the Ortolan. We can all wait, or one day, not too far from now, we can read about what they tasted like and wish that we could have tried it. I don't want to travel to a zoo one day and see the last one. I don't want to stand there and realize that because of my profession, this bird is the only one left. I don't want to hear it singing out, calling for another one of its kind. And you don't either. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me and produced by Timothy McDonald. I want to give this week's shout out to Roberta's in Brooklyn. If you are in Brooklyn and you have yet to go to this institution, you are a moron. It's amazing and you should definitely get there as soon as possible. I want to thank Audible and The New Yorker Magazine for letting me talk about them this week. If you want to write to us for any reason at all, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. I do take the time to read and respond to everyone and I really like hearing from listeners. We are back next Thursday with another brand new episode of Let's Talk About Chef. And so until then, as always, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service and have a great week.
1: Spring is here. The suffering is here. Life is Skittles and life is beer. I think the loveliest time of the year is the spring. I do. Don't you? Of course you do. But there's one thing that makes spring complete for me and makes every Sunday a treat for me. All the world seems in tune on a spring afternoon when we're poisoning pigeons in the park. (laughs) Sunday, you'll see my sweetheart and me as we poison the pigeons in the park. When they see us coming, the birdies all try and hide, but they still go for peanuts when coated with a cyanide. The sun's shining bright, everything seems all right when we're poisoning pigeons in the park. We've gained notoriety and caused much anxiety in the Audubon
0: Society.